Could the end of America's long and disastrous drug war finally be in sight? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Is America finally starting to wake up from the long, disastrous drug war nightmare? It was a significant election day in this regard. The most obvious bright spot in these uniquely dark times is the electoral ouster of a dictator wannabe, though, of course, he refuses to recognize reality. But a far less obvious yet truly historic bright spot is that the results of the 2020 election prove that America's failed prohibition, the decades-long, monumentally disastrous war on drugs, may finally be coming to an end. How many millions of lives were deeply and grievously injured? How many innocent victims were there? How many family members of those jailed in immoral mass incarceration suffered needlessly? How wealthy and powerful were the American drug lords made at the expense of people without power at the lowest ends of the income scale? And why did it take so many decades for this insanely failed prohibition to end? How long will it still take to undo the human damage caused by such people as Nancy Reagan and many more? As our guest Zachary Siegel writes, in a dark election cycle that took place in an even darker year, what Oregon and these other states did stands out as a bright spot. Zachary Siegel, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show. Zachary Siegel is a journalist, researcher, writer, editor, and consultant in Chicago. His work focuses on public health, mental health, the criminal legal system, and policy solutions to seemingly intractable problems. His work has appeared in The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Slate, Wired, The Nation, Scientific American, The New Republic, Politico, New York Magazine, and a whole bunch of others. He helped build Changing the Narrative, a digital toolkit that helps reporters, policymakers, and other influential communicators avoid inaccurate, stigmatizing, and harmful tropes that plague the field of addiction. And he co-hosts a podcast about drug policy called uh, Narcotica. I hope I pronounced that right. Well, again, thanks for being with us. There's so much to talk about. But first off, because of the presidential and senatorial elections sucking all the oxygen out of the room, A lot of what was remarkable that happened on Election Day has been largely out of the mainstream media news. So far, we've become, as you say, a country of unyielding criminalization, mass incarceration, and dare officers peddling propaganda to grade schoolers. I doubt anyone would argue that all that has been anything but a disastrous failure. It was a policy which hinged on ultimatums and coercion. And you write, in both red and blue states, voters rejected a racist, punitive, and ineffective system for dealing with substance use and addiction. Well, all right, a lot of people didn't follow. What happened in which states regarding the big change in drug policy? Yeah, so I think to start, we can begin with cannabis. So marijuana legalization 
everywhere it was on the ballot this year, it passed. And so Mississippi, red state, they legalized medical cannabis. South Dakota and Montana and Arizona, also states with pretty conservative voters, they legalized recreational cannabis. And so that's just a huge change in the in the drug reform and cannabis legalization map alone, bringing us to a total of, I believe, 15 states and Washington, D.C. that have legalized cannabis. And there were also voters who rejected drug laws for other drugs this Mm -hmm. year for the first time. And Washington, D.C. and Oregon are two of those who decided to uh, change laws around psilocybin and Mm -hmm. other psychedelic plants. So those those are pretty big moves. And so those... uh, those two joined sort of a handful of states like like Denver that have decriminalized psilocybin. Mm. And by by far the the biggest, most I think thrilling and fundamental change to to drug policy and the drug war happened in Oregon, which I think as we'll we'll get into oh, yeah. in much more detail about, uh, they voted to pass measure one ten, mm-hmm. which decriminalizes the possession of all drugs that includes heroin, LSD, methamphetamine, cocaine, personal amounts of drugs in Oregon are now decriminalized. That's it's pretty amazing considering, you know, the uh, the rise of the uh, uh, right wing, you know, moralists who would no doubt fight this. And we'll talk about who was fighting it and, and, and who wasn't. But uh you know, and I got to tell you, I'm one of those old guys who I actually thought that at least marijuana would be legal and taxed by 1980. Boy, was I wrong. I graduated college in 1972. I, I, I never would have figured it would have taken this long. And how much damage there's been. It's just, uh And there's so much to talk about. The effect on, on children, what message it gives. The divisions between Americans today we have to recognize, are fiercer than at any time since the Vietnam War. But there was remarkable unity across the political spectrum on this issue of drug policy reform. As you say, quote, it wasn't only stereotypical libertine progressives who made 2020 a banner year for drug policy reform, end of quote. So who was it? And and what what brought such remarkable unity? No, it's a really good question and one that I think will require much more digging and reporting and uh, analysis that I that I have frankly done so far. And I think right now we also don't have a full kind of autopsy uh, in terms of voter data from the 2020 election just yet because exit polls are mm. uh, notoriously yeah. inaccurate. And so we, we really need like the uh, much more detailed, minute voter registration data before we can really say what happened. But, you know, I have a couple theories just because I've been covering drug policy for, for many years now and, and really kind of, swim in the world of drug policy 
uh, reformers, you know, lawyers and activists. Like I, I really like talking to these people for my work. And so my takeaway from, you know, what unified uh, even red states like Montana and South Dakota and Mississippi to to ease back their their drug laws and 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 loosen up cannabis at least. Um, there's there's a few things that I immediately kind of started thinking about, and I think the one explanation is simple: is money. You know, yes. cannabis is now a, a a booming business. It is fully capitalist, no doubt. And when red states that may be really suffering from uh, budget holes due to the pandemic and, and even just regular old fashioned austerity, cutting back programs and shrinking the government, this causes problems. And I think it's when people see the, the projected tax revenue streams that that legalizing and commercializing and selling cannabis provides. Yeah. They literally see green. I think I think there are dollar signs falling falling from the sky, <laughs> and that they 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 do think that selling cannabis can uh, bring in much needed revenue for the state. So that that that's like the the one explanation that 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 could tap into why um, more conservative leaning voters did this. But I think we can drill down even even deeper and, and say that people, whatever your political leanings, use drugs, like drugs, and drugs make them feel good. There's plenty of old Republicans who also grew up in the 70s that used cannabis when they were young, and some of them may have never quit, or some of them are getting back into it. Who knows? But absolutely baby boomers, I think the majority of them have at one point in their lives life used cannabis oh, yeah. and i and i think if you ask a, a everyday republican what they think about the drug war i think most of them think it's a a, a bad policy that, that it's not working that it's a waste of money that it's not helping people and and i think cannabis is sort of the the lowest hanging fruit sort of the first step uh -huh. in, in, in in recognizing that yeah interesting and I, I've done a little bit of research on uh, on the earlier prohibition. The other failed, terrible policy was that basically the reason alcohol prohibition ended was that same thing. Government needed the revenue. They had, you know, they were taxing uh, alcohol before it became illegal and then noticed, oh, we don't have enough money. So, you know, as Bob Dylan said a long time ago, money doesn't talk, it swears. It's about money. For sure. Uh, and the other prohibition, you know, is, is universally, I think universally recognized as a horrible failure. A lot of different groups were involved with that, uh, left and right. Uh, a lot of it was kind of racist, actually, against the immigrants at the time. But it only lasted a few years, while this prohibition against cannabis and other drugs went on for many, many decades. And I tried to figure out why this one lasted so long and the other one didn't. One is tradition. Alcohol was widely accepted prior to prohibition, whereas other drugs were, now, uh, were not so openly welcomed. The second reason I can think of was the original war, the original reason for the war on drugs, a way to control 
oppress and lock up people of color, uh, specifically Mexicans. That was in the 1930s, and, and black musicians as well. That was in the 1930s. So if you could please fill us in on my limited baby boomer memory. And second, why was it so readily embraced in the 70s and 80s, the drug prohibition? What's, why, what's the story of the drug war? Why was it one of perpetual escalation, as you describe it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually reading a fascinating book by a historian of drugs at the University of Buffalo. His name is David Herzberg. And he has a really fascinating way of framing America's system of, of not only drug enforcement, but prescription drug dispensing and the whole pharmaceutical industry. And to go way back to even the uh, 18th, 19th century, before federal prohibition really, really came down and Nixon launched the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. That was 1971. So there's a lot of history to cover before the drug war formally kicks off. And what Herzberg really traces in his book, it's called White Markets, Hmm. Big Pharma and the Hidden History of Addiction in America. And, And I like the way he frames his book because he talks about how the divide between pharmaceutical medical drugs that doctors dispense to patients and this line drawn from that side, which is called the white market, to Hmm. black market, which, which we would think of as heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine. All these drugs that are sold on the illicit market, he really shows that that line separating black market from white market is rather pretty arbitrarily drawn and that throughout history, drugs are sort of flowing back and forth across this arbitrary line, dividing medicine and drugs. And before heroin became illegal, doctors would prescribe morphine to their addicted patients to to treat their withdrawal symptoms, to keep them from getting sick. It was called the cure. It, it, was, yeah. it was, you were getting the drugs that you needed from your doctor. But the po- politics, and you, 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 you talked about the, the racism and frankly, Protestant moralism mm. at the heart of some of our drug laws really goes back to the, the, the uh, opium, the first opium laws, taxing opium, targeting Chinese uh-huh. enclaves. Uh-huh. And so and so you had some of these laws banning Chinese ran opium dens. And 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 a lot of this kind of panic at the time was about was actually centering vulnerable white women who were going into these dens and getting hooked on opium and hanging out with sort of the, the underworld uh, characters of the of these Chinese enclaves and in places like San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so this, so like this, this pattern really 
can be traced to Mexican immigrants and migrants with, with cannabis and, yes. and, 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 and black people in the South with cocaine, that you, you constantly have a manufactured narrative around white women yes. uh, sort of cavorting with these bad uh, minorities, whichever minority is bad at the time. <laughs> And and their and their various uh, consumable and commoditized drugs, and so you know a lot of the early drug laws come from these panics throughout history, but also this attempt to cordon off the uh, white market where doctors can give their patients cocaine and give their patients. Mm-hmm heroin or whatever opioid they need um you know like that's that's the sort of mm-hmm. sane rational system that actually protects consumers where the drugs are pharmaceutical grade they're given to people who need them yeah. and the people derive pain relief or pleasure or they feel good because of a drug that their doctor gave them and in our system, that is technically okay. Like we, 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 there are laws regulating those drugs and, and pretty flawed consumer protections kind of for people mm. taking those drugs. And then we have the black market where it's the total opposite. You get punishment, you get harsh criminalization, you have a, uh, an, an illicit drug supply full of unknown adulterants and mm-hmm. potencies and and so we have this this is the system we work with, we, we we have today which is proving to be disastrous because every year tens of thousands of people are dying from yes. overdoses yes. in this black market yes and so we we really need to think rethink our current system of, of drug enforcement our current system of drug regulation our current system of Uh, protecting consumers and patients who who take these drugs and kind of try our best to to deconstruct and um, destruct this arbitrary line separating medicine to treat patients and drugs that so-called junkies and hedonists Mm -hmm. like. They're really the same thing. Yeah, and... Growing up in the 50s, you know, I, and yes, I'm one of those boomers that, uh, you know, you, you got a problem, you got a pain, eh, just take a pill, you know, that'll fix it. And, and it was the drug culture is not something outside of, you know, the mainstream. It is the mainstream, but you're right, the, uh, the separation, the arbitrary line of separation. And the fact that, <laughs> you know, when, when uh, black people are dying, of heroin overdoses and things like that. It's not anywhere near the story of when white people are dying of overdoses and adulterated drugs. It's the, the racism is just phenomenal in our jails, the mass incarceration. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Zachary Siegel about a glimmer of light that the drug war may be finally coming to an end. And there are some specific um, examples of states that on this election day made some big changes. What, what forces were on the other side? Uh, you know, as we say, people of all stripes agreed in those states where prohibition was chipped away. Law enforcement officials, district attorneys, chief of police, sheriffs, 
organized against the measure. Why is that? Is it, I've, I've sometimes wondered because, you know, is it easy to catch these people? You know, they don't have to fight what I would consider real crime. What, what motivates the law enforcement officials, the chiefs of police? Chiefs of police hate it. I mean, they hate uh, drug legalization. Why? What's, what's your sense of that? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult thing to untangle. So I think at base, the, the law enforcement apparatus, you're right, they, they did organize and vocally oppose Measure 110 in Oregon. So the Chiefs of Police Association, a, a handful of district attorneys, I think 25 district attorneys, organized against it and and various uh, other police officials voted against it. And most of them say that they just think this will cause more drug use, cause more crime, and that uh, what they're doing, arresting people, uh, protecting people, that that works or that that's what they think when they see a quote-unquote drug problem as a nail, they're the hammer. And I think their um, conception of, of, of drug use and drug dealing and crime and all these things, um, yeah, I think they really see it as something in their domain. Mm. And when it's their turf being stepped on, I think they're trying to defended. I think they're trying to justify their existence and their budgets and their approaches and and really kind of almost maybe think about it in terms of like you're taking away our job. You know, it's our right. job to 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 enforce the laws and arrest the dealers and 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 protect people. And Frankly, um, what I think voters showed is that is that they, they really do re- reject that uh, construction of the problem. I think they've seen drug enforcement fail for many, many years, and especially in, in Portland, where where the uh, the vast majority of people who are arrested day to day are homeless people. They're they're unhoused. These are people on the streets who probably are using drugs in public because they don't have a place to use privately. Mm. And so many of the arrests, I think in 2017, an investigation found that over half of, of the arrests that Portland Police Department made were, were unhoused. And, and, and so they, they really do target people, the, the, the low-hanging fruit, uh-huh. as we would call them. And so... I think yeah, people really see that 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 this isn't working, and and that we need a new approach. And also, I, I think the, the the sort of law enforcement bottom line is that um, yeah, that that this is their this is their turf, this is their job, yeah. and they're trying to defend it. Of course, and you know th- this show, keeping democracy alive, is coming at listeners from New Hampshire. And this state is surrounded by states and provinces where cannabis is legal. It's legal in Canada, legal in Maine, 
legal in Massachusetts, legal in Vermont. And they've struggled again and again and again, uh, specifically the, the marijuana policy project. Uh, but the argument used over and over again is, well, what about the message it gives to children? How, what's your response to that? You know, that if you legalize cannabis, at the very least, you know, the message it gives to children. Uh, I, I know what I would say, but I'm curious what, what you, uh, how will you answer that and what you hear? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different responses to that. And I think, again, the protect the children refrain even harkens back to the original reefer madness propaganda yeah. that, that there are predatory dealers wearing dark hoodies that hang out across the street from from your child's mm-hmm. school. And when your child gets out of school and they're walking home, some creep is going to try to, to sell them drugs and get them hooked and profit off of their misery. That just doesn't happen that way. It, it just doesn't happen that way. And I would actually probably shift the narrative over to alcohol and tobacco. These barely, barely regulated, right. harmful, dangerous substances Deadly, that yeah. are advertised on billboards, at least tobacco after the, the, the big tobacco lawsuits, some of the regulations, some of the more successful regulations to get people to stop smoking were around taxing it more heavily yes. and, um, and regulating advertising, you know, making sure that Joe Camel, these funny cartoon right. characters, cannot pop up on Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, this is basic, basic stuff that prevents kids from exposure and it has very little to do with this kind of scary boogeyman drug dealer that I think a lot of people harken back to. And I can tell you from having kids myself, it's all readily available right now. I do believe, you know, alcohol is legal, age 21. Uh, cigarettes, I guess, are legal age. I don't know what the story is there. I don't know why people, but... Uh, 21, 18, yeah. It's and... You know, it's out of control now. And my argument is, hey, it's out of control. Why not, imagine this, get it under control. You know, have it age 21, have it taxed, maybe regulate the amount of people. It's just, and I th- maybe people are, are getting it. And I wanted to ask, you know, aside from the, the law enforcement people, among the opposition forces that were, you know, against uh, decriminalization and legalization, are there names we might all recognize in you know fairly recent history? There's obviously uh, uh, Nancy Reagan, but were there a lot? Of, who, who? What are some of the names that we might recognize who are against it? And I wonder if uh, in Mississippi, where amazingly it passed, was there a lot of money put in for and against the referenda there? So two questions. Yeah, yeah. So the, the first question about who is really organizing against Measure 110 and decriminalization generally um, outside of law enforcement, funnily enough, the organizers of Measure 110, all of them told me that the biggest, most vocal, and most organized opposition was the addiction treatment industry. And a lot of them, I think, see that the total restructuring of the system of 
uh, addiction treatment that Measure 110 does, because let's remember, it doesn't just decriminalize drugs. Mm -hmm. It takes cannabis tax revenue, puts it in a big pot that then groups and organizations that, that treat uh, substance use disorder, that, that hand out syringes to people who use drugs, that all these harm reduction organizations right. and public health organizations, they can now apply for funding and it's tens of millions of dollars. It's, it's a lot of money on the line here. And the addiction treatment industry saw this as a threat to their bottom line uh -huh. because what Measure 110 does is create a funding stream for treatment and other health services that is divorced from the criminal justice system and operates independent from it. Where in the current structure, a lot of treatment centers rely on the courts sending them patients. So if you get arrested for possession or, or DUI or all kinds of drug-related arrests, oftentimes the courts will try to divert you and send you into treatment programs. And these treatment programs rely on a steady stream of patients and money from the criminal justice system funneling them patients. And this is where we get into that idea of coercion mm -hmm. and, and forcing people in, into systems of care that they don't necessarily want. And so the, the treatment industry in Oregon especially did not like Measure 110. Mm. A lot of them had uh, pretty uh, cynical, frankly, talking points against it about how Measure 110 won't create any treatment beds, about how Measure 110 is going to promote drug use, how Measure 110 isn't going to help people get into recovery, all these things. And it's just frankly untrue. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. We frankly don't know yet what Measure 110, uh -huh. what their system is actually going to look like yet. It has yet to be built. So why are they trying to tear something down before it's even built yet? Because it's competition, I'm sure. And yeah, I, yeah. I will never forget, many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I heard the, the head of a, a treatment center saying when he I, he didn't think anybody was hearing, I think, something like, oh, they're all drunks, they're all addicts. Says, yeah, we can't help them. There's nothing they can do. It's just a money-making thing. And I was shocked at the cynicism that, that was operating in that. It was just, you know, uh, a part of a, a system, you know, a court-to-jail uh, system that... Uh, <sighs> Boy, I, I wanted to ask, and eventually, we're getting toward Oregon's Measure 110. It is pretty interesting, I must say, that mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's also Measure 109 in Oregon. And, you know, we know that uh, the addictive drug alcohol can often prove devastating. Everybody knows that. And everybody's heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I bet hardly anyone knows that Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous credited visions he got from psychedelic substances for his personal salvation from alcoholism and for setting the spiritual aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, uh, psychedelics were very important to him. And Oregon voters on Election Day 2020 approved Measure 109. So tell us about that, please, and what it means for research going forward regarding possible treatment for so many mental and emotional afflictions. Yeah, this is another one of those exciting things that, that happened on election day where Oregon's Measure 109, I believe it legalizes 
psilocybin treatment centers. And mm-hmm. psilocybin is the active ingredient in uh, magic mushrooms or hallucinogenic mushrooms, whatever you want to call them. And it's quite exciting because for the past uh, many years now, institutions like Johns Hopkins and, and MAPS and many others are coming out with pretty remarkable yes. data about treating various uh, complicated problems that people have mental health wise with psychedelic treatment. And uh, one of the actually really fascinating outcomes of psilocybin treatment is its ability to help people quit smoking mm-hmm. out of all out of all treatments for quitting nicotine and quitting smoking, psilocybin works the best. Amazing. And tobacco, as we know, kills, yeah. I don't know, roughly half a million people every year. And if we can make a dent in that, in that number through psilocybin treatment, I mean, that's, that's potential to save so many lives. And so, like you mentioned, these drugs like, ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA or all these psychedelic drugs, you know, they were considered party drugs and really, really bad and super dangerous um, and became illegal. And that really uh, obstructed the ability for researchers to, to study them. And, and that's, that's I think, true. Yeah. really starting to change and, and really must change because we, we really need to know if, if these drugs can, uh, can help people. And, and I think the, the evidence we have so far shows that they indeed can. And so why, why restrict that? So I think it's really important to, 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 to acknowledge how big of a change that is as well. Yeah, it is really a big change. And the idea of going from an out of control party drug, which, you know, LSD and other things, if taken by people who really shouldn't take it, uh, it can be very dangerous. It can push people into horrible psychoses. But if you have a psychiatrist, you know, under control, I mean, Tim Leary used to talk about set and setting and making sure, you know, you have somebody, a guide with you. That's important stuff. And it can, I mean, PTSD, there's no question that what limited research there is, it can help a lot of people get over things that they haven't been able to face with a guide. It's really important to do that under control. And I emphasize the control aspect of it here because out of control, not so good. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Zachary Siegel. And we're talking about uh, votes on Election Day this year that didn't get quite the coverage of uh, Biden versus Trump. Uh, but make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. So let's get to one we've alluded to a number of times, Oregon's Measure 110. You describe it as an elegant one-two punch. Tell us about this new law, how this measure came about, and perhaps, well, we've talked a little bit how bad the drug problem, addiction problem was in Oregon. So tell us about Oregon's 110. Yes. So as I sort of already already mentioned, um, first, what it does is it takes away criminal penalties for drug possession. That's, that's the most basic definition of decriminalization. Things that were once criminal are no longer criminal. 
So simple drug possession. This means if you have uh, a couple grams of heroin or you have a few pills of MDMA or tabs of LSD or a gram or two of meth, all the weights are sort of varied and different. And I hope that Oregon makes it very clear what weights will ultimately trigger a, a, a different charge. But if you are caught with personal amounts, it is like equivalent to getting a speeding ticket now. You can get a $100 non-criminal citation, which, yeah, a speeding ticket or a parking violation. Nothing more serious than a traffic ticket. And that fee, that $100, can be waived if within a certain amount of time from the incident, you agree to a free health assessment, which will be conducted by a a, a licensed counselor or social worker. And so that's really the, the first big thing that Measure 110 does in mm. its sort of first arm. That's the decriminalization side of things. And the second thing that it does, and this is what I, I mentioned about with the, with the treatment facilities, it creates a new funding stream for a statewide network and a suite of public health uh, addiction treatment and harm reduction services. And this is paid for by redirecting tens of millions of dollars mm. in cannabis tax revenue. So in addition to that tax revenue from cannabis, there will also be savings produced from reductions in arrests, policing, and incarceration. So savings from that will mm. also be directed toward this pot of money. And so for perhaps it's the biggest public investment in in treating addiction as an actual health condition Oregon has ever seen. And currently, Oregon's system is, is quite messy. We don't really have good outcomes about what treatments work, and they're sinking a lot of money into it. And people just don't have access to the services they need in the current system. So Measure 110 really creates this whole new health and treatment infrastructure for the treatment of addiction and drug use on top of decriminalizing drugs. So it's a really, uh, I think it creates a really unique climate to, to see what a, what a totally different approach can produce results-wise. Well, that took it took a lot of thinking for sure. And you know, H.L. Mencken a long time ago said, "To every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong." <laughs> this sounds like a complex solution that that people thought about a lot, and it relates, I believe, to Portugal during the 1990s. Portugal's drug problem apparently looked a lot like America's do now. Talk about that, please, and and what they figured out and finally implement and what uh, Portugal's experience may be with this. What are they doing? Yeah, Portugal's a really interesting country and it's new kind of system of government. It's, it's sort of a, a pretty young democracy. And for a while, Portugal was under pretty harsh authoritarian rule. And when that government ended, when the sort of dictatorship ended, it opened up Portugal to the rest of the world. And finally, you had commodities and commercial products like 
like Coca-Cola. They didn't even have Coca-Cola up until sort of recently. And so when this new young democracy formed, it didn't really know how to deal with with things like alcohol use, with things like drug use, with things like addiction that really started to, to, to creep up because of its newly uh, open arms to the rest of the world and in global supply chains and transnational capitalism and all that. So when Portugal became part of that system, uh, addiction, HIV transmission rates, hepatitis C, overdoses, all of these sort of began to skyrocket. And the original approach that Portugal followed was America's approach, which was to criminalize, to put people in jail. And this was during the 90s when the drug problems in Portugal really peaked. Mm -hmm. And at, at a certain point, roughly half of people who were in prison in Portugal were there on drug-related offenses. It had the highest HIV transmission rate at one point in the European Union. And so toward the end of the 90s, and officially in 2001, Portugal decided that they would do something different. And they became the first country in the world to decriminalize all drugs and, much like Oregon is doing now, investing heavily in treatment and health and social services. And we now have 20 years, nearly, of, of data to look at how Portugal is doing and the country really made a remarkable recovery. And so this, this idea, this model called the Portugal model mm. is really celebrated and around the world by, by activists and, and drug policy reformers. And that's basically what Oregon just did. They, they instituted the Portugal model. And the, the, the title of, a, of my piece out in The Baffler is called The Oregon Model, because I think what uh, Oregon is, is doing, like Portugal, can potentially have pretty far and wide implications if, if other states want to sort of implement their own version of the Portugal model the way Oregon did. Yeah, it's nice to learn <laughs> and not just uh, react. And in terms of reaction, you know, if you talk to your average person, you know, they, they may say, okay, legalize marijuana, it's not so bad. I know people who, you know, use it. But when it comes to heroin and other drugs, when you talk about, I would think, you know, if you go up to the average person and say, well, you know, maybe we should legalize all drugs, they freak out, you know, that they, they think, wow, you know, marijuana is one thing, but these other drugs are, are, are dangerous as all heck, and they are. So tell us about the concept of harm reduction and how that may affect approaches going forward. I, I, what about harm reduction? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people will see the headlines coming out of Oregon and uh, might kind of recoil a bit from the idea of decriminalizing all drugs. I think it sounds counterintuitive and, and actually quite radical. And for America, it actually is counterintuitive and radical considering the trajectory we, we've been on since Nixon declared the war on drugs almost 50 years ago. So my, my, my gut instinct tells me that if people are open en enough and, and have the vision and imagination 
to to look at reality mm. and think, why are things this bad? Why are so many people dying from overdoses? Why aren't people getting into treatment? And why is HIV and hepatitis C spreading? And why are people so lonely and isolated? And why is addiction and deaths of despair uh, from suicide and alcohol soaring? What, what, what's at the root of all these problems and, and what can be done to fix it? Yeah. I think taking, taking all of that in, there's a, a few kind of uh, lines of argument and threads to follow. And one of them is, is harm reduction. It means, okay, the reality is right now in the U.S., people are using heroin that is adulterated with, with oh, illicitly yeah. manufactured fentanyl. Ugh. This is a super, super potent and dangerous opioid that is concocted in laboratories all around the world. And in, for, for instance, in China, they are exporting the kind of raw materials and chemicals to manufacture mm fentanyl analogs so basically what harm reduction does is, is try to take this reality and work backwards from it and reverse engineer where the harm is coming from and so if you're someone who is addicted to heroin and you're you're using daily then a harm reduction approach would be Let's make sure that you have sterile injection equipment yes. so that you don't get hepatitis C and HIV. Let's make sure that if you're buying bags of heroin on the street, that you can test that product to see if it has fentanyl in it. Mm -hmm. And if it does, then you can adjust your dosing and use less of it so you don't die. And, and, and even in, in Western Europe and in Canada and other countries around the world, like Australia, they have supervised consumption sites where people can use drugs that they obtained on the street under medical supervision. And in this type of a facility, you are being monitored where you use your drugs and there are nurses and, and, and first responders on standby in case you overdose. And so what all of these are doing is promoting and creating the possibility that people survive their addiction and live mm. long enough to get to a point where they might want to do something different, where they might want to make changes. And that starts with slow, small, incremental changes that someone can make that makes their using less harmful, that increases the likelihood that they will survive without uh, drastic consequences later in life, like hepatitis or, or HIV. So harm reduction is really about making sure that people can survive and live long enough to get to a point where they, where they want to change. And again, in America, that's just a very different concept that, that, that isn't, um, that, that really doesn't gel with the, yeah, I guess the abstinence only approach that, uh -huh. that has been really, really popular and sort of dominated the, our conception of addiction treatment. Oh yeah. Abstinence only. Yeah. That, that works real well, <laughs> you know, with, with kids and sex and 
you know, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And yet so many people uh, think, well, just lock them up and throw away the key, forget about it. But as you say, you can't humanize people you deem to be criminal. But when, yeah. as you say, when they're treated with dignity and respect, that really helps society in general. And, and speaking of, of society in general, mass incarceration, you know, it's just, it's the, these, uh, the laws impact communities. Uh, some communities have been way disproportionately affected by marijuana-related arrests and conviction. How, how does, I mean, this mass incarceration is a massive, massive problem, and people don't want to look at it because it's usually those other people, you know, the people of color that you don't hang out with. But how does this start to address the serious, serious problem of mass incarceration? I, I think it's, again, a step in the right direction because I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to oversell and overhype right. and, and make promises about decriminalization that might not come to fruition. Uh -huh. But I do think it's a step in the right direction and can begin to unravel part of what's driving so much incarceration and and absolutely the, the drug war and drug arrests and drug convictions are part of mass incarceration but it's not the biggest uh sort of driver of mass incarceration and then the criminal justice system is a really massive complicated patchwork of uh that that all kind of is operating at once, but also operating in all these different silos because every city has its own jail and its own police department and its own court system and its own prosecutor. So to really tackle mass incarceration, yeah. you need to look at the whole pie. You need to look at the prosecutors, which also in this most recent election, progressive district attorneys and progressive prosecutors who campaign on ending um, unnecessary drug enforcement, they're, they're winning, you know, they're, 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 there's a big movement to elect prosecutors and district attorneys who, who campaign on ending uh, drug enforcement. Mm. And, and so I, I do think that, that you can connect the dots, that, that you can link drug arrests to, with punitive uh, prosecutions to aggressive policing and drug enforcement that disproportionately harms people of color, that disproportionately targets communities of color. And, and, and I think also connecting the dot to just family separation. I mean, yeah. liberals really, really went berserk when they saw Mexican right. migrants and, and, and Latin American and South American migrants um, children in cages separated from their families. Well, what is mass incarceration if not oh. a family, a gigantic family separation policy that, that destroys communities? So I, I think there's a way to kind of connect all these dots and 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 show that that that, that drug enforcement and drug arrests are are indeed part of what's driving mass incarceration. And that to begin to unravel this, we really need to wrestle with with our criminal justice system. 
Boy, we really do. It's a difficult problem that we really have to face because it's it's just it's horrible. As you say, family separation. Interesting, you know, you, you look at those others down on the border, but here all over the country, families are separated. I, th- I thought it was interesting that, uh, uh, as you say, the country is often far more progressive on drug issues than its elected officials. Sometimes, quite frankly, I've wondered about, you know, the, the crime world that benefits so much, that profits so heavily from keeping drugs illegal. If some politicians may, you know, get some money from those interests, I don't know. It's just a, a speculation. <laughs> But your article, you point out that cannabis legalization and drug decriminalization outperformed both presidential candidates this year. That's fascinating. What should be made of that fact? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good bookend to the conversation because this is kind of where we started thinking about what united so many red and blue voters in purple and red states to to vote for Donald Trump and vote for legalizing cannabis or to elect Republicans to the House and the Senate who oppose cannabis legalization while also voting to legalize cannabis. So there's like a, a disconnect and an incongruity there where clearly not people are not only voting on issues of of legalizing cannabis. In a way, it's almost like people were voting on progressive ideas and not progressive candidates. Uh And that that didn't happen everywhere, but but I do wonder if there's a way that we can begin to look into the voter data and begin to look at, and also, frankly, talking to the, the organizers in places like Arizona and South Dakota and Montana and talk to the campaigns that successfully got conservative voters to to vote on progressive ideas like cannabis legalization. I do think that there's something fascinating that we can learn from them and take away from them that might be able to translate how you got conservative voters to vote on progressive ideas. Uh-huh. Interesting. The ideas are way ahead of the candidates. Uh, I think the public often is, but politicians tend to be a little bit skittish to stick their necks out on anything. I just want to ask wh- one more thing, uh, Zachary Siegel, sure. and that's retail outlets in states that have legalized marijuana depend on cash sales only because it's still illegal at the federal level. They, credit cards, you can't be used. I hear there may be efforts to address that in the upcoming Congress. What what is known about that and how can people help? And what about the Biden administration? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm really anxious to look at how the Biden administration will uh, govern on drug policy and who they'll appoint as the attorney general and who they'll appoint as federal prosecutors and U.S. attorneys, and, and, and if they'll prioritize, frankly, something like the MORE Act, which this is a, a bill of, at the federal level. It's called the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, huh. and it's a bill that would decriminalize cannabis, remove it from the list of controlled substances, eliminates criminal penalties for people who uh, manufacture, grow it, distribute it, 
sell it and, and possess it. And I also think part of this would um, make it okay to, yeah, use your credit card to purchase cannabis and, 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 and switch up some of the, of the, of the financing. And I think it, it would basically tax cannabis products and that money will be deposited into a fund and who knows what could be done with, with all this money. I mean, it, it could pay for reparations. I mean, it, it could, it could build infrastructure. It could give people jobs. I, I'm really, really curious um, where uh, the federal and national laws go from here because if you know there's there's 15 states that have legalized cannabis now and at what point is there a, a critical mass yeah. or or a tipping point that that forces the 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 federal government uh, that forces it, its hand to 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 change the the, the federal and national laws because the way cannabis became illegal at the federal level first is because a bunch of states made it illegal first. And so uh-huh. it's sort of, we're seeing the reverse process play out where a bunch of states are making it legal and then maybe the federal level will be forced to act. It could happen. It's always good to hear some optimism. And I, I sense some real optimism here. It's been so, so bad for so long and so many people have been hurt and and the drug war has been a complete and utter failure. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff and uh, keep in touch, Zachary Siegel, how can they best do that on the internet? Yeah, so I have a website where I, I try to keep it updated and, and post um, my various stories and projects too. So you can go to ZacharySiegel.com huh. and... I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me at Zach Writes Stuff. I'm, I'm on Twitter way too much, and I tweet way too much, and so you can yell at me or thank me or do whatever you want on Twitter, and I'll probably see it at, at some point. And, and yeah, so I'm pretty easy to find. Thank you so much. It's been very uh, informative, and it's good to see some, uh, some sunshine coming in here, a real bright spot. Thank you so much, Zachary Siegel. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. And you got to have a sense of humor. Anybody remember this oldie?